invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24. As you're turning there, let me remind you of the dramatic scene that is happening in this passage. The chapter begins with Saul going into a cave, and uh, and David is hiding in the back of the cave with his with his armed men, his, his soldiers. A perfect opportunity for David to strike down Saul, to kill him, and to take his place as the king. But as we read, uh, and as I preached two weeks ago, David restrained his hand because he knew that it was that vengeance was not his. He left that in God's hands. And then as Saul left, David goes back out uh, to Saul and, and speaks to him in a way that is respectful, that seeks peace, that even, even tries to confront his sin for his conversion and reclamation. And we come now to Saul's response to David. I'll read verses 16 through 22. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul. Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. David's, excuse me, Saul's sorrow in this passage presents us an opportunity, an opportunity to consider and contrast what I'll call godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. These are words that come from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. You have to admit that at first glance, they may look the same to you. But godly sorrow and worldly sorrow are very different. The passage today will highlight that. I would suggest that even a child can understand this. Even the children of the congregation will recognize when someone is genuinely sorrow and when someone is just being forced to say, I'm sorry. Maybe you can recognize this in yourself. I bet the parents can see this. Have you ever had that time where you've been caught fighting with your brother or sister 
and your parent comes, your dad comes and says, you've done something wrong. Say you're sorry. Hold out your hand, shake their hand, and say I'm sorry. And maybe you've done this. Sorry. And we wonder at that, right? We wonder, is that person really sorry? Well, probably not. (laughs) They're sorry that they got caught, right? They're sorry that maybe they're going to be in trouble with their dad after this for what they've done. But they're not really sorry for what they did. In this passage, Saul is sorry. He's genuinely sorry. But it's a sorrow that doesn't rise out of genuine faith, and it doesn't lead to repentance. So today, I invite you to consider how godly sorrow leads to repentance and life, whereas worldly sorrow only leads to death. We'll begin with Saul's sorrow, or worldly sorrow. The outline on your bulletin is very simple. We'll be looking at worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And I'm going to give you several characteristics of each of those underneath those headings, all aiming at how godly sorrow leads to repentance and life, and worldly sorrow leads to death. I'll say again that this is really a moving scene. Think of the dynamics of what are happening here. Think of how God has been shaping David throughout his trials and through the persecution that Saul has brought against him. Think about his courage to bow his knees to God on high and so not take vengeance on that enemy. And then think of how he led his men to do the same thing. And the courage then it took for him to step out of the cave to show himself to his enemy Saul. He would be very vulnerable at this situation. In terms of of dramatic scenes, this is another one where modern movies would really play this up. Can't you envision this? David stepping out of the cave in front of Saul and his 3,000 soldiers and bowing to him and seeking peace with him and respectfully rebuking his sin, even prayerfully wanting and longing Saul's repentance and return to a godly path. And so... Here is Saul hearing the words of one that he has been hunting and trying to kill. And what does David hold up in his hand? But the corner of his own robe. And he can look down and he can see, yes, David cut off the corner of my robe. He could have cut off my life. And Saul is humbled by this. And he listens to David's humble words. And he hears that humility of his seeking peace. And even the respectful rebuke of his sins. 
And Saul is moved to sorrow. He wept aloud, and he calls David his own son. Is that you? Is this my son, David? And in the midst of his tears, he confesses that David is more righteous than he was. He acknowledges that David had the opportunity to kill him, but he withheld his hand. He didn't do what was was the common practice of the world to take advantage of an enemy. Instead, David had let him go. He goes on to acknowledge that what God had promised would come true, and it evokes from Saul even a blessing to be pronounced upon David. May the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And Saul is brought to even acknowledge that David would indeed be the next king in Israel. This is likely the hardest thing for Saul to say because it admitted that his own family name and his dynasty and his future would not continue. Now I know, says Saul, indeed that you shall surely be king. You shall be surely be king, and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. And then, like his own son, Jonathan, Saul asked David to deal kindly with his descendants. Swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me. Again, a very common practice in the medieval world, in in the ancient world. Swear that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. David continues his path of righteousness and humility. He was all too glad to swear such a thing. The two men part ways in peace for a time. So what shall we make of Saul's sorrow? What do we learn of worldly sorrow from Saul? Well, first we can say that it was genuine. It's apparent that God used David's words. He used his humility. He used even this respectful rebuke to touch Saul deeply. Otherwise, he wouldn't have let David go. Saul was genuinely sorrowful. But we know that Saul, to this point, has shown no evidence of being a believer. He's proved it over and over again. We'll rehearse some of that again today. The most immediate thing from this passage is that he will soon forget this sorrow that he has towards David. All you have to do is flip over to chapter 26 and you'll find Saul doing exactly the same thing. Hunting David down, trying to kill him. That's not someone who has shaken hands and embraced and said, I'm sorry, forgive me, from the heart. That's someone who did this, sorry. And yet, 
his sorrow was genuine. From this, we can recognize that that worldly sorrow is a genuine thing. We don't have to uh, to, to distance ourselves or. Uh, we don't even have to judge someone's heart and say, is he sorry at all? Is he sorry enough? Did she, uh, did she speak from the heart or is she hiding something? That's because the consequences of sin bring sorrow, genuine sorrow into our lives. In fact, it can be a teachable moment as we interact with those around us. It could be a moment to appeal to someone that we love, even as David appealed to Saul. You'll notice that David doesn't come to Saul and, and say, I told you so. As soon as Saul shows sorrow, he doesn't say, well, this is what you get, and kind of, I wash my hands of you, and you will get what you deserve. Instead, there's an opportunity in the midst of a world that bears the consequences of their actions to show a godly compassion to those who are sorrowing over the consequences of their sins. That's not an easy place to be, though, is it? We're considering especially Saul and his worldly response to sin. And it doesn't take long for Saul to return to his own ways. And yet David can accept this instance of genuine sorrow, sorrow that stems from those consequences, and to show compassion to Saul to speak into it. And I would observe the same thing for us today, that there is a world of sorrow around us. We can acknowledge that. We can do that with godly compassion and gospel light, praying with hope, even as David does, the Lord would use this instance to teach and to train and to change the heart of one who is under that burden of sorrow. The second thing I'll say about worldly sorrow is that it's revealing. I'll note again that Saul is such a tragic character. It isn't very often uh, that we have something of, of the script laid out for us and we can see behind the scenes like we do with Saul. Throughout his life, we have noticed that over and over again, Saul is surrounded by the things of God. He, he, he is surrounded by many blessings of God's people and the and the word of God and the worship of the Lord, he's, he's part of that, but his heart is unchanged. He never responds to those things with saving faith. 
Instead, it seems like he manages his responsibilities rather than embracing what God has given for him to do like David does. He doesn't embrace the Lord who has raised him up to serve as king. So over and over again, we see this contrast between Saul and David, and and the same is true today. Instead of embracing God and this confrontation of his sins, what he speaks and what his sorrow reveals where his heart really is. So in this instance, Saul's sorrow reveals that he knew that David would indeed be the next king. That was what God had proclaimed through the prophet Samuel. And Saul is brought, in a sense, to grudging acknowledgement of that. What it doesn't say is how that seems to eat at Saul. He says it to his son Jonathan when, he, when Jonathan and David pair up and, and Saul says, what are you doing? This man will replace you. But now as he's confronted by, by David and confronted really by God, he is, has to grudgingly say, I know that you will be the next king. That the kingdom will be established in you. And he hates David for that. He hates him so much that that's why he was hunting him like a dog. As one commentator, Gordon Ketty, says, this is Saul that is most candid. For the protective shell of lies and hatred have been largely stripped away by David's godly witness. There's a revelation that takes place in the sorrow of the ungodly. A revelation that the rest of scripture helps us to know that that the Lord has placed eternity in mankind's heart. The Lord has placed the knowledge of God to know even his invisible attributes that are made known by the world around us, but they are suppressed in unrighteousness. And the sorrow of the world cries out underneath the consequences of sin in maybe silent admission of guilt, silent admission of the condemnation of God against sin. Because the world is without excuse for rebelling against God. And it is a grievous thing to kick against the thorns. It is a grievous thing to rebel against a holy God and to rage against the consequences of a holy and just and loving God who invites and calls and says, repent and I will forgive, and yet to not come in repentance. 
worldly sorrow is revealing. But once again, this can be a teachable moment. Choices have consequences, and consequences can be heavy. And that sorrow may be revealing. And it may be that even today that you feel the hand of God in consequences against your sin. It may be that you have been secretly cherishing sin and been pretending the life of a Christian and yet walking, raging against those consequences of your sin. I would urge you to pay attention to the hand of God today. To not plug your ears to the consequences of your sin. To not turn your heart away from that call of God to repent and he will forgive. For if you do not, those consequences will continue in this life and the life to come. Your sorrow is revealing. Pay attention to it, what it reveals. Thirdly, worldly sorrow, while genuine, is aimed at the wrong thing. This has come through already, but let's just draw it all together here. Worldly sorrow seems mostly to be concerned with the consequences of sin, the consequences of getting caught. Our sorrow ought to be regarding our sin against a holy God, but instead, when, when we don't recognize God in our lives, worldly sorrow is more concerned with the fact that my reputation is damaged or that I, uh, my parents have caught me in doing sin and now I, uh, I have a spanking that is coming to me. Or think of a student that gets caught cheating on a test and they flunk the class. They have no concern about that cheating. It's just the consequences that they're, that they're concerned with. Think of a man or a woman who is sorry for the trouble that their adultery has brought into their life and, and, uh, and the trouble that that causes, but having no recognition of how it is a sin against Almighty God. Again, sorrow is genuine. Those consequences are real. They are painful. They are heavy. We don't have to say anything otherwise. It is genuine sorrow. But if that's as far as sorrow goes, then it isn't godly sorrow. It's directed towards those consequences. It's directed towards the inconvenience or the genuine pain or sorrow that it is wrong. And don't get me wrong, the consequences are bad and should produce sorrow. But if it stops there, it is not godly sorrow. 
for Saul, his sorrow stops there. You can hear it in his words. He acknowledged that David had acted with mercy towards him. Mercy that he had not shown, that he would not show. He speaks of David uh, being merciful and his own acting in an evil way. That's the closest that Saul comes to an admission of wrong. He even says that David was more righteous than he was, which is not really an admission of sin, is it? Is it? In fact, he seems to reserve the fact that he's done the best that he could, but David just outshone him. You are more righteous than I am, which says, well, I'm righteous, but you did better. Saul grudgingly acknowledges, in a sense, that David is one. So he acts to save his face, to preserve his family, to preserve his legacy. He had to face those consequences of his sin. But it was worldly sorrow. Having considered, then, the sorrow of the world and Saul's sorrow, let me now turn and contrast it a little more briefly with godly sorrow, a godly sorrow that we'll see in David, and then we are informed by the, by the broader scripture about this. Once more, let me just give you some characteristics of godly sorrow. First, godly sorrow has God's person and holiness in view. It stands in contrast to Saul, who was focused on his own name and reputation and and the sorrow that he had for those consequences. Instead, godly sorrow says, you, O Lord, are holy and I am not. Think of Isaiah chapter 6 and a godly man, Isaiah, coming into God's presence and being humiliated before a holy God, knowing his sin. And he expresses that before God. David will demonstrate this later in his life. He sinned too. Let's not make any, any false ideas about David being a superhero. David was a man just like you and I. David was a, a was part of the human race, and so sins entangle us each and every day. But when David was caught in sin, and when Nathan confronted him, he grieved over how he had sinned against God and man. He certainly had consequences, consequences that followed after him. And he grieved over them, but his grief ran much deeper. In Psalm 51, David says this, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when I speak and blameless when you judge. David knew he had sinned against 
Bathsheba and Uriah and the nation of Israel, but his grief rises to see that he has sinned against a holy God. Godly sorrow acknowledges that our sin is against him. Second, godly sorrow leads to true repentance. And once more, Saul is so different. Saul was sad, but he never repented. We have no record of that sorrow leading to him going to the house of God and doing as David does here, crying out for mercy and forgiveness. You don't find that anywhere. But godly sorrow leads to repentance. This is the work of God's spirit. He is the one who prompts believers to sorrow over their sins and to recognize that God also grants repentance. And this is why I read from 2 Corinthians 7 this morning. I I love these words of Paul. You can read a little bit more about the context there of of how Saul wrote a sorrowful letter to the Corinthians. He confronted their sin. And he talks about how that was hard for him to do, but that he wasn't sorry that he did it because it produced repentance. If you hear, listen to verse 10 again. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Or think of the parable that Jesus told, the parable of the prodigal son. When he finally came to his senses, when he knew that he had sinned, he said, I will go home and I will repent, for I have sinned against God and against my father. And he did that. He went home and repentance and so God comes to us he comes to you in love and he confronts your sin so that you would repent and that is the work of God it isn't pleasant it is a difficult thing to be disciplined but it yields something glorious. It yields repentance. And that repentance, thirdly, has the idea of turning away from sin and hatred of it and turning to God. Well, that's literally what repentance means. It means turning around. You are going one way and you repent of that. So you turn from your sins and turn towards God. And that's where Saul demonstrates a lack of repentance. There's no turning away from the hatred that he had towards David. Well, listen again to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He goes on and says that uh, not only does it produce repentance, but he says, observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. Let me just highlight those words that are used there of what 
what grows up out of repentance, what grows up out of godly sorrow. There's diligence. Turning is not easy. It's a train wreck, right? A train going down the track that is turned around, that is not done easily. But there's diligence as opposed to being unconcerned about the change that God is working in your life. The opposite of diligence is carelessness or a sleepiness towards God's voice. And godly sorrow produces such diligence. There's a a spiritual clearing or cleaning that takes place. This is what uh, Paul talks about. Look at what is happening here. There's clearing taking place that as God justifies us, as he declares us to be righteous in us, he is then also renovating your life, clearing you of sin, both in its judicial capacity, in that justification, and in the cleansing capacity of helping you to put off what you have been entangled in for all of your life. And look at the indignation over sin that is described. Indignation and vehemence and zeal in that turning away from sin and turning to Christ. By God's grace, this is what the Lord is working in you. And it's it's an encouragement to you for anyone here that the Lord is, is chastising. Let me take that back. All of you here, all of you here have sin that entangles you. Take courage in the midst of the Lord's discipline that he is genuinely at work. Take courage as that turning is taking place. It may feel like you're bound up in that sin or crushed by it. But know that the Lord will not stop helping you to fight to wage war against that sin. Because that's his purpose. To pray that the Lord would work godly sorrow in you. That leads you to turn away from sin. To hate it. To wage war against it. As you turn to God. Finally and in closing. I'll say that godly sorrow leads to life. It leads to forgiveness. It leads to restoration. It leads to salvation. And this is where the gospel shines through in this passage. For it is the work of God's own spirit to confront and to convict those who are dead in their sins. For you and I would be just like Saul if it were not for Christ for his spirit at work in you. Worldly sorrow produces death. That's all its capacity has. Worldly sorrow does not bring salvation because it never comes to God in repentance. And so here the gospel today God 
confronts all sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God confronts sin and he offers life. He offers a way to be free from that bondage in which you are without Christ. He presents a way of hope in the midst of a sorrow that seems to crush you. And that is through Jesus Christ and through him alone. Let that sorrow that you are experiencing, let that sorrow uh, do its godly work bring you to repentance and faith. And as children of God, let me urge you to not despise that disciplining of the Lord. Listen to what Saul did and let your sorrow be a sorrow that brings repentance and life and change Cling to Christ, your Redeemer. And may that sorrow lead you to him. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that our attitude towards sin today would be confronted. I pray that we would never deal with it lightly. I pray that we would indeed be brought to tears over the sin that does still so easily entangle us. Thank you, O God, that you don't leave us in that despair. You have given us life. You have changed our hearts that have been hard towards you. And for that, we say thank you. We thank you even that you have afflicted us. For in that affliction, you have shown your love. And may that affliction bring repentance and hatred of sin and turning from it and and obedience uh, and resolve to newfound obedience. For Lord, we are your children. We pray that you would not leave off the work of your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I chose Psalm 116 as our closing psalm because of that expression of the grief that we have over our sin, but also the hope of forgiveness that comes. It speaks of our being bound under the terrors of the grave and the sorrows of our sins. And together we express that in repentance. But the psalm is more than that. How fervently I love you, O Lord, for you have released me from that. So we'll close our service today with songs of that release. That we have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. So let's stand and sing with joy Psalm 116a. Mm-hmm.